March 19th, 2021 marks the 18th anniversary of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. The catastrophic warfare that followed claimed the lives of over a million Iraqis, led to the death or life-altering injury of tens of thousands of U.S. service members, and sowed chaos throughout the Middle East. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We're joined by Mike Preisner, the producer of The Empire Files. Mike is also a co-host of the podcast Eyes Left, a socialist military podcast hosted by two anti-war army veterans of the Afghan and Iraq wars. Mike Preisner was a soldier serving in the U.S. military during the Iraq invasion in 2003. He went on to become an anti-war leader who organized soldiers and veterans to resist the Pentagon war machine. Mike Preisner, welcome. Thanks for having me, Brian. Mike, before we get started, I want to just set the stage for our audience by listening again to a short, odious clip by George W. Bush on that fateful night, March 19, 2003, where he tells the American people the country is at war once again. Let's listen. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. Mike, when you hear George W. Bush announcing there's going to be a decisive battle, shock and awe, the whole nine yards. Of course, that was played for the American people, but you at the time were already in the U.S. military, you were in the Army, and I guess you would have been already in or on your way to Iraq. Is that right? Yeah, you know, um, every time I hear it, I, of course, remember hearing it for the first time. I was in a barracks room of one of my friends, probably, you know, 10 of us or so, you know, not many of us had TVs. We're, you know, crowded into this very small room watching Bush's announcement of the beginning of the war. Many of us in that room were preparing to leave in the next day or so. And I think at the time there was still a great sense of disbelief. The buildup to the war happened for us anyways. It seemed like it was pretty quick. You know, it seemed like something that would not happen. And then before we knew it, we were being issued our desert camouflage uniforms. But you have to remember at the time, like the consciousness that soldiers had was not one of conventional or unconventional warfare. The war in our recent memory was really the Gulf War. Of course, 9-11 had already happened and there were a small number of soldiers who had gone to Afghanistan. But, you know, the first year of the Afghanistan war was, you know, considered not much of a war from the soldiers' perspectives, similar to the Gulf War, where 
that was the big war that we had in our minds where this is what the Iraq war is going to be like. Like a lot of us are going to go, we're going to sit on a base and not see anything. It'll be over in three months. You know, all the dying is on the other side. It's like you have to worry if you're under the bombs, but um, wars are different now in the modern era. This is the 21st century. And, you know, there's not going to be another Vietnam or something like that. And so I think watching there is this sense of disbelief that it would really impact us. And I think that, you know, there is a general dislike of George W. Bush among the people I knew anyway. And so there is also a sense of like, you know, it wasn't compelling his speech. And many of us were not impressed. And, you know, most of us didn't like Bush. I mean, in the military, it's mostly poor and working class people. And Bush, of course, we all knew lived a very different existence. And so, you know, we were all very skeptical. But in our minds, it was, oh, this is going to be over soon. There's really no risk to us. You know, we were not in a combat arms unit. So we were not thinking that we were going to be anywhere near any of the fighting. I will say, though, that the big thing that we were thinking, though, was that even though maybe Bush was lying about the weapons of mass destruction, we were all extremely skeptical about that and didn't really believe it. And all very much aware at the time of Bush's oil connections and Halliburton, you know, all of that was like kind of common knowledge among rake and file soldiers. But for myself and for many others, we were thinking, well, you know, maybe Bush is lying about this or that. And maybe there are these ulterior motives, but maybe it will be true that we will give the Iraqi people a better life and that maybe they do want us to come. And Saddam Hussein, you know, is terrible and we can give Iraqis the kind of future that they deserve. And that was what all of us were thinking who are preparing to go. You know, it's pretty ironic, I think, because that was just fueled by just pure ignorance of not understanding anything about Iraq. You know, at that time, pre-invasion Iraq, if you were a young person going to college and pursuing the kind of career or dreams that you wanted to pursue was probably much, much easier than if you were an average poor working class person in the United States. And so young people from a country where your outlook is very grim, going to Iraq to give them a future, people who, of course, already had a future, just kind of reflects the just ridiculous indoctrination that we had about being these great white American saviors going in to rescue a population. But that's what it evokes for me. So, Mike, real quick, how old were you? I was 19. And most of us were that age. Most of us on my deployment had joined the military before 9-11, shortly before 9-11. There was maybe one person in my entire company who joined after 9-11. So that initial wave of us were all people that joined with a understanding that we probably would never go to war. You know, people who joined before 9-11 thought, we'll probably never go to war. But it, it wasn't only that, like it, it was people who weren't joining with this sense of like vengeance or revenge for the 9-11 attacks, like a desire, not only thinking that we may not go to war, but no one had this desire to go and kill as retribution for the 9-11 attacks, which I think defined the wave of soldiers that joined after 9-11. So I was 19, but many of us were younger. In fact, one of my best friends on my deployment was 17. I mean, you're actually allowed to join the army at 17 as long as you turn 18 within a certain amount of time in your first year of enlistment. So he's the one that joined after 9-11 and then he had his 18th birthday in Iraq with us. And so all of us were quite young. All right. I want to talk to you about, first of all, so you had skepticism about George W. Bush. You didn't fully buy it. You weren't going to Iraq with vengeance in your heart. You thought perhaps since Saddam had been 100% demonized, your image was the Iraqi people want to get rid of him. Maybe this will help 
liberate Iraq. You really didn't know anything politically or socially or culturally about the country. So you're going on limited amount of information. You're 19 years old. Then you get to Iraq. Where do you land in Iraq and what's your job? So I was in the invasion force that came from the north of the country. And so there were a couple planes. We were supposed to stage in Turkey and then come in from Turkey. But at the last minute, Turkey said no because of mass protests in the country. I was on one of the first planes that landed. We were in like a convoy of eight planes and the first three, everyone parachuted out and then we landed. This is in northern Iraq. And so when we landed, we were with the PKK, a Kurdish militia. And so, you know, the indoctrination that we were going to be greeted by people cheering with flowers and gifts for us, you know, that actually happened. Like we woke up in the morning, you know, on a snowy, cold, muddy tarmac. And there were people bringing us gifts and flowers and cheering for us. You know, it was this Kurdish militia that was working with the United States to topple the Iraqi government. And so from the very outset, we're thinking, oh, yeah, like this, it's so far, it's checking out. And my job was something I never did in the army in my entire time. It was some kind of like radar computer thing that none of us knew what it was. Everyone in my job, we all got tricked into the job by the recruiters. We had no idea what it was until we got to a training. And it was kind of a useless piece of equipment. And so after the first week or so, you know, of it proving to do nothing, it was packed up. And then in the beginning, it was just waiting to go home. You know, in that first couple months, you know, we went from that airfield we staged at in northern Iraq, moved pretty quickly to the city of Kirkuk. Things went pretty quickly. And then it was just, oh, we're just waiting to go home now. And so all of us and everyone in that unit, we were all told like, oh, you'll be home in like two months. I was writing letters home saying, you know, I'll probably be three months maximum. And so after the first few weeks, you know, we were all just waiting for the orders to get back on a plane and leave. And that's, you know, of course, when things started to unravel. So let's just talk about that, Mike, because when the American forces arrived in or invaded Iraq on March 19th, March 20th. They had a light footprint. There was about 120,000 troops. They raced towards Baghdad from the south. There were also troops, as you said, and troops you were with from the north. In three weeks, by April 9th, the Saddam government had been dispersed. Saddam himself went into hiding, and the celebrations began in Baghdad. We found out pretty soon after that, that a lot of the so-called celebrations were staged by Iraqi-American exiles, many of whom who came from Michigan. They were part of like an advanced <laughs> publicity team. And they were, you know, toppling that statue of Saddam in downtown Baghdad. And it looked like, you know, America won. And George W. Bush, who had been, you know, the target of anti-war wrath by most people in the country, the majority sentiment in the country was against the invasion of Iraq. We were having demonstrations in the Answer Coalition in October 26th, January 18th. Those were 200,000, then 500,000. On February 15th, there were millions of people, not just in the United States, but around the world. March 15th, 2003, another 100,000 marched in Washington. I mean, the American people were, for the most part, very against this war. The phone calls coming to Congress were running 300 to 1 against the invasion. But by April 9th, when Bush was able to come on TV and said, we did it, we won, that war lasted just three weeks. It's not like Vietnam. It's not years and years and years. It's three weeks and we've toppled the dictator 
and he staged that sort of photo op on the aircraft carrier, the Abraham Lincoln, which they actually, it was parked in San Diego. They took it back out in order to bring it back into shore so he could be there with his bombardier jacket on, standing like Mr. Macho Man, even though you know George W. Bush managed to avoid service during the Vietnam War. He was there and he was standing under that big banner that said, mission accomplished. And for a moment, George W. Bush's popularity went up. He won. He succeeded. It wasn't Vietnam. It looked like a real military success story. But then the resistance starts. And I want to talk with you about how the resistance started. Fallujah, which of course became both a flashpoint for the resistance and a kind of semi-genocide that was committed by Marines in the spring and then again in the fall of 2004. At first, the people in Fallujah, which was always called later the rest of town of Fallujah, which is just west of Baghdad, those people had their local school occupied by U.S. military forces and their kids couldn't go to school. So after about a month or two, they said, we want to get our school back. Can you please leave the school so our kids can return to school? And of course, the U.S. military said no. And they organized a march on the school, an unarmed march. These were not people who were like in armed resistance, but they were shot. Live ammunition was used against these civil protests over the use of a school. And suddenly, as you're saying, everything started to change and the resistance started to grow and it started to grow exponentially. So again, going back to your story, that must have impacted you, even if you're in the northern part of the country where there may have been less resistance, say, than closer you know, to Fallujah or Ramadi or other places. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, that phenomenon of U.S. soldiers opening fire on demonstrations was not just in Fallujah. It happened in many other cities and the city where I was. I mean, I remember an incident where I was out in a government building on the town. Protests were regular and there was a huge amount of gunfire. And it turned out that it was soldiers opening fire on a demonstration, you know, after claiming that they had been shot at from a rooftop, whether or not that's true. You know, they opened fire on the demonstration, I think, killed about seven people. And so, you know, even, you know, where I was, this was happening. I think that the resistance, you know, went through a couple stages. Of course, there was the initial resistance, like those in the Iraqi army that stayed and fought. And there were very major battles between the Iraqi army and the U.S. military. And, you know, that didn't really get seen too much. I think that if people really knew the kind of real stories of like the real force on force conventional warfare that happened between the U.S. and the Iraqi military. I mean, that was a significant part of the resistance. But, you know, the kind of overwhelming force of the U.S. military and technological advantage that ended relatively quickly, you know, where I was, you know, the biggest worry for us was scud and chemical weapons attack and artillery attacks, which were happening. In fact, (laughs) when we were getting on the plane to go, we were told, you know, there's probably a 90% chance that we're going to get hit with chemical weapons. And so that was our oh shit moment. And so we, were, we weren't really scared of getting shot or blown up. You know, we were scared of choking on chemical gas. Of course, that didn't happen and there were no chemical weapons used. But because we were with Kurdish forces who had been chemical attacked, military intelligence experts said it's a guarantee that you're going to be hit with some kind of mustard gas or something. But anyway, I mean, after that initial resistance by those who stayed in the Iraqi military and fought, which was significant. There was like a quiet period. And that was really, and from what I experienced, because, you know, we rolled into Kirkuk pretty quickly. 
and friends of mine who are in other places, you know, can say the same thing that there was calm because, you know, the Iraqi people were just kind of waiting to see what happened. And they were told, just like we were told that, you know, we're coming in to topple the government and then we're going to leave and we're going to give you democracy or, or whatever it was. And so there was a lot of just waiting the most of the Iraqi population to say, OK, well, are they going to leave? Let's see what happens. And I think one of the major contributing factors to resistance starting was tied to what you mentioned, Brian, was the conduct of American forces in that early stage when there really wasn't a lot of fighting and there wasn't a lot of resistance. You know, I mentioned that most of the people I was with and we didn't have this consciousness of going to um, get vengeance for 9-11, but also I was in a non-combat arms unit. And so the culture wasn't hammering into our heads every day that the greatest thing you can do is kill another human being. But very much that's the case in infantry units and scout and artillery units. I mean, it's, of course, the culture overall of the military. But when you're in a combat arms unit, you know, that's what's drilled into your head, that the greatest accomplishment is to shoot another person in battle and be able to claim that you killed someone in a firefight. And so you had all of these people, all of these soldiers going to Iraq, definitely not all of them, but a significant enough amount of soldiers in that first wave of soldiers thinking this war is going to be over soon. It's going to be nothing. It's going to be like Afghanistan so far. It's going to be like the Gulf War. Like I have a very small window where I can get my award for valor or get my combat and, you know, it'll get me promoted. It'll get me awards and I'll have these bragging rights. And this is the experience I joined, you know, the infantry for was to like fight. But when there was no real resistance, when there weren't Iraqis fighting, there was no one to shoot back at who was shooting at you. I mean, there was, but in small numbers, there was this phase of just really just complete brutality by U.S. troops against people who were doing nothing, who weren't resisting in any way, who weren't doing anything that could be deemed anti-American or anything. And so, you know, we know this through many of the testimonies at the Winter Soldier hearings, through people who have spoken out to the media and people that I've talked to is, you know, a lot of Iraqis in that first year and in the first months were killed for nothing, for just walking down the street. And some some American soldier said, ah, I want to shoot this person and it would just shoot them or just driving down the road, shooting people on the side of the road. I mean, this this is kind of one of the hidden histories of the Iraq war is that there was just a mass killing all across the country by people who just wanted it was like, this is my opportunity to shoot someone. So, of course, doing things like, you know, raiding houses and just treating people horribly for no, you know, not after you found weapons or found evidence of something, which would also be wrong, but just brutalizing people for the sake of being brutal. And this is this is well documented at that time. And so, of course, as you can imagine, uh, people who are being subjected to this kind of treatment you know, it was just like occupying for the sake of occupying. Like all these soldiers are here. There's nothing going on. Their job is to occupy the country. And they're just acting like complete belligerent, you know, awful people. And that, of course, triggered reaction from the Iraqi people. Like, you know, if, if these people, the soldiers obviously aren't leaving and they're here acting in this way, you know, that's when resistance started to form. And it was extremely organic at first in my experience. You know, a common thing in the year I was there was like one guy with an AK-47 
opening up on a bunch of soldiers, just holding the trigger down, not knowing where he's aiming, spraying bullets everywhere, and then dropping the gun and running away. And so there was even like a lot of worries like, oh, you know, it's they're just spraying bullets. They're not even aiming at anything. Or like a farmer, you know, a common thing was like a farmer who would be once a day, he'd have like a mortar hidden under a blanket or something in the middle of his field where he was herding goats or planting crops. And a certain time every day when he was on his rotation of tending to his crops or herding goats, he'd pop the mortar tube out, drop a couple mortars in it, shoot it at a U.S. position or U.S. base, put it back in the ground and go home. And so it wasn't this kind of organized, coordinated, trained thing. It was just individuals just saying like, screw these people. I want to do something about it. Of course. And then it started to become more organized. You know, the incident in certain places became the real organized hubs of resistance, places like Fallujah and others. You know, but for us, myself being in a unit that didn't have that mentality of we got to like be horrible to all these people. But we knew what was going on. And to some degree ourselves, we witnessed incidents and we knew that it was going on. And and I think that we early on, like we like understood why resistance was happening. And, you know, for me personally, like there was definitely a moment where I was like, I would be doing the exact same thing the Iraqi people are doing if these soldiers were in my country treating my family and my community like this. Mike, you had testimony at Winter Soldier, and maybe you can quickly explain what Winter Soldier was. It was obviously it came a little bit later. You were no longer in the military, but it was similar to what happened during the Vietnam War when anti-war GIs and anti-war veterans who had fought in Vietnam started to come and tell these horror stories about what U.S. imperialism and what the U.S. troops were doing, what kind of crimes against humanity were being committed, war crimes. And they were sickened. They were disgusted. They changed. They became anti-war and anti-imperialist themselves. They became militant organizers against the war in Vietnam. So they had something called Winter Soldier. And then the Iraq War veterans, also in the face of this growing resistance, they turned against the war, a whole lot of them, including yourself. And they gave testimony at Winter Soldier. And at your testimony, which you know was an amazing testimony and viewed, I think, I don't know, by millions of people on different social media platforms, You said, you made the point, look, we went to Iraq thinking that we were going to fight the terrorists, but by virtue of my experience there, I discovered that we were the terrorists. That was a sentiment that you held. What you're saying is that other soldiers felt the same way. Yeah. And not just soldiers who were like me, who were people that never expected to go to war and and wasn't there for the killing or there for the brutality, but also soldiers who did join to shoot someone and who did go and shoot people, you know, they changed also. You know, it wasn't just those of us who were initially somewhat disillusioned or got into something we didn't expect to, but the entire, every type of soldier you can imagine showed that they could join the other side. I mentioned that in the early stage of the Iraq war, when their resistance was very low, there was this extreme amount of brutality from U.S. soldiers, which was accounted for at the Winter Soldier testimonies and many other documented examples. but. Imagine when the resistance did start. And once the resistance did start in an organized way, and then you had soldiers, units who were getting hit, who were having their friends, you know, killed on a regular basis because the resistance became quite strong. And so there was a high likelihood that you would be killed or someone close to you would be killed. You know, once the resistance really took off, the brutality by the U.S. 
went into high gear. And that quote that you mentioned, you know, the the real terrorist was us. You know, we are the ones doing the terrorizing. I mean, that actually was orders given to infantry companies by commanders saying we have to out terrorize the terrorists. This is something that an Iraq war veteran, Ethan McCord, testified to. I mean, that they were told your orders are to out terrorize the terrorists. And so the phase of the war where the resistance was strong was a phase of the war where the U.S. brutality was completely unhinged. I mean, you had people testify at Winter Soldier and in other documented accounts where, you know, your job was, you know, because IEDs were a big problem. IEDs are roadside bombs. I mean, it was the number one cause of death for U.S. soldiers, and they became more and more sophisticated. In my time, they were kind of rudimentary and would miss you easily, but then they became very skilled at them. And so basically the policy of the U.S. was to shoot any Iraqi person who was carrying a shovel, because that would mean he may be going to dig an IED. So who knows how many Iraqis were murdered because they were just walking around with a shovel, which is a normal thing to carry around. You had other units who were ordered to, if you were to take contact, if someone was to shoot at you or an ID was to go off, just shoot in all directions called 360 degrees of fire, where you would just open fire at everybody in all directions. Of course, knowing that not everyone in all directions was the ones that were shooting at you, but to unleash such vicious killing in the wake of a U.S. attack to terrorize people and to think, well, you shouldn't carry out an attack because we'll just kill everyone that's around. And so that actually became what characterized the Iraq war for a period. And, you know, we know from the WikiLeaks documents that, you know, one of the very common ways you would die as an Iraqi was just at a traffic checkpoint where there's a soldier at a checkpoint who just unloads into your car because they perceive your car for whatever reason to be a threat. And just a massive number of Iraqis who were killed just trying to drive to work or see their families. Let me jump in there. You mentioned Ethan McCord. Ethan McCord was actually one of the soldiers in the WikiLeaks in that very famous the Iraq War Logs tape where the video shows, the video that WikiLeaks released that the Pentagon refused to hand over to Reuters when one of the victims was a Reuters journalist. But this journalist and Iraqi civilians were walking and you know, this helicopter pilot says he asks for permission to start to machine gun them and he gets permission and he starts shooting them. You see this, all this terrible death and destruction on the video. And then some Iraqis pull up in a car. And I think maybe one of the cars is trying to help one of the wounded people, a driver gets out. And then the helicopter pilot asks for permission to shoot the car. And he quickly gets that permission And I believe Ethan McCord was one of the GIs who ran over to the car and discovered that the parents are shot dead. They're just civilians who happen to be going by. And he picks up a child and the child has been shot as well. The child did not die, but a young boy, a young girl, just shooting everything. And Mike, just the logic of this, I mean, these are obviously war crimes. The Geneva Convention says in war, the rules of law require you to take extra precautions so that civilians are not killed. But what you're saying is basically the rules of engagement for the American military in Iraq was shoot as many people as you want, shoot 360 degrees if shot at, shoot civilians coming in their cars into squares. Because ultimately, and I think this is the political logic, if Iraqis die, it's not a political bombshell in American politics. But if the American soldiers start dying in larger and larger numbers, then 
in the thinking of U.S. policymakers, in the thinking of these imperialists, they're thinking like, wait, that's what happened in Vietnam. The war could not be won. The resistance could not be stopped. And the American death toll just kept going up and up. And finally, that triggered this massive movement of the American people that completely polarized American society and was a factor compelling the Americans to leave Vietnam. So it seems to me that there's a logic to this war criminality, which is it doesn't matter if Iraqis die because they won't be a political liability in domestic political calculations. That's right. And you're right. Ethan McCord was, was actually the one that saved the children in that vehicle. And you know all the things that I've been explaining, a lot of it comes from testimony from him and other people like him who are in units that were brutal in that way. And you know, you mentioned the the Apache pilots and they're really they were just so anxious to kill the people in the vehicles and who are walking around, like desperate, like please give us authorization to shoot. I mean, it even though these people weren't doing anything. You know, and how can you explain that kind of mentality? Like who would want to kill innocent people with such like fervor? You know, in the United States we have this culture of militarism. I mean it permeates everything. And when you really think about it, it's everywhere you look. It's like this glorification of war, the military, and by connection, killing, a glorification of killing. I mean, it's and everything in our culture has this reverence for shooting and killing. And of course, within the military, that's in like hyperdrive. If we have it in just general American society in the military, it's, it's in hyperdrive. And, and when you have people like these Apache pilots, you know, who are officers, who are planning to be in the military their entire lives or to do a quick stint and get out of the military to then work for some defense contractor, make some six-figure or higher salary, you know, they need to be in combat engagements like that so they can get their bronze star or their silver star and they can get their promotion and, and their glory. And, and it's such a part of moving up through the ranks of the officer class. That's also why they were very anxious to shoot those people. Of course, you know, Apache pilots are not in any danger in any way. You know, there were zero... I believe Apache helicopters shot down in the entire Iraq and Afghanistan wars. It's probably one of the safest jobs you can have because you're miles from the people you're shooting and you're silent and no one can see you or reach you with any munitions. You know, it's so it's almost the same danger as you have like playing a video game at home. Mike, there's the mentality that you're describing that flows from the militarism that permeates American society, that permeates the Pentagon, this disgusting, gross, criminal mentality. Then we have another element that sort of also really, really stimulated the resistance in Iraq. And that was that the United States appointed Paul Bremer. You'll remember Paul Bremer. He was the leader of the Coalition Provisional Authority of Iraq. Sort of sounds like the governor general in the old colonial days. So you have this American who has really worked for Kissinger's private company, by the way, Henry Kissinger, that is. He's now named head of the Coalition Provisional Authority of Iraq after the Saddam Hussein government is dispersed. So you have this colonial overlord. The guy does not speak Arabic, does not speak Arabic. In other words, he cannot communicate with anybody who speaks Arabic. He's now in charge of Iraq. And one of his first acts was to debathize the entire society, which meant to debathize the Iraqi military. Now, the Iraqi military was the Ba'athist army. So if you're going to get rid of anybody associated with the Ba'athist party or the Ba'athist 
military in a one-party state where if you're going to be involved in anything in government or in the military, you could not avoid being associated with the Ba'athist party and its military command, its military leadership. So he disbands it. He says, we're going to rid Iraq of Ba'athism, sort of like the denazification in Germany after World War II. So now you have 100,000 people who are in the army. That's their job. That's how they get their income. That's how they feed their families. There are also people who fought in the Iran-Iraq war. They also were involved in the mainly just as a punching bag or a target during the first Gulf War. But people who are not unfamiliar with fighting, in other words, they weren't sitting around forever. So you dismantle the Iraqi army, make them all unemployed. Well, what can they do? Well, the resistance starts to recruit them. And the resistance starts to recruit people who actually know how to fight and who have weapons and who have been in battle before. The American soldiers are all expecting, well, whatever is going to happen, I'm going to go home after a year. Well, the Iraqi former Ba'athist army soldiers now unemployed, they are home. They're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere and they're getting hungry and their kids are getting hungry and they have no future. So the armed resistance really starts to take off in 2004. In 2003, there were signs of it, like the UN headquarters in downtown Baghdad was completely destroyed by a major bombing in August 2003. That was a big shock to the West. That was like, wait, wait, this is like five months after we thought the war was over, five months after George Bush stood under the banner on the Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier under the banner, mission accomplished, meaning it's all over. But it's not over. In fact, the resistance starts to grow. And obviously, we have the return to what in many ways is like Vietnam, because the Iraqis are a proud people. They have a long, rich, anti-colonial tradition. Iraq itself is, in many ways, one of the centers of or origins of human civilization, That a civilization that goes back thousands of years. So obviously, Iraq, a proud people, a lot of people who know how to fight, people who are basically armed, they start to fight. And by 2007, Mike, America is losing the war. America is really losing the war. And there were two demonstrations that the Answer Coalition organized in 2007. One was on March 17th, 2007. That was the fourth anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. And then on September 15th, 2007, there was another demonstration. Now, you were now out of the military. You were at both demonstrations. I met you at the September 15th demonstration. That protest was called by answer to protest against what was called the surge, where George W. Bush was going to surge 100,000 more troops to Iraq because the United States was losing the war. It was turning out to be Vietnam once again. And anti-war sentiment in America was going sky high And George W. Bush's popularity was going, well, it was in the basement. He was becoming hated because of the Iraq war. So here we are now, four years later, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis in this resistance are now dead, either because they're resisting or because they're just targets of American brutality. You have thousands of Americans who are already dead, many, many thousands more who have lost a leg, lost an arm, lost an eye, have been terribly disfigured are suffering psychic and psychological 
wounds that will you know be life-changing as a consequence of the trauma of being in a real war and then you know the surge happens now i met you there on september 15 2007 and i want to just remember for the audience or tell the story for the audience that march was a little bit like the january 6th march that donald trump organized it started at the white house and it went to the capitol but unlike january 6th when we had this demonstration of a hundred thousand people led by iraq anti-war veterans a very significant contingent who had come from all over the country and the answer coalition was making a concerted effort to organize GIs, active duty GIs, and veterans who had turned against the war or who we thought could turn against the war. So a lot of soldiers came in uniform. When we got to the Capitol building after marching, we were coming to the Capitol to deliver a letter to Congress saying, don't vote yes on the surge. End the war. Don't accelerate the war. And, you know, the police, unlike January 6th, they weren't unprepared at all. They set up a huge defense parameter far outside the Capitol. When we got there and tried to deliver our letter, we had to climb over a bicycle rack in order to get to the Capitol. We were pepper sprayed. People were tear gassed. People were clubbed. Hundreds were arrested. We went to trial. And actually, we were acquitted at trial because we made the argument that they said we crossed a police line. Again, so so unlike January 6th, when there was no real police line, except in one or two areas, we said, look, it's not a real police line because tourists could actually come into the Capitol. The police line was set up just to block us. So we was like, that's not a prohibition of all entrance into the Capitol building. This was disfavored speech. If you were against the war, against the surge, then they were going to put up a police line and mass arrest us. And we went to trial and we actually won at trial because the court ruled this was not really a legal police line. You and I met each other in handcuffs. That's right. We were, by some interesting fate, we were side by side in the detention facility for many hours, zip tied, after both being arrested there at the Capitol. But, you know, you had been, of course, organizing against war since the Vietnam War. And so it was maybe natural for you to be there in that position and probably had many times prior to that. But, you know, for me, it was it was like the first step into the political struggle as a veteran and in the anti-war struggle. And the way that happened was, you know, we talked about how the Iraqi resistance began to grow and a consciousness of soldiers changing at the time. You know, I was there that first year and what was called a peaceful area, which is a relative term because, you know, the second half of my year there, I mean, we were under like heavy rocket and mortar attack pretty much every night and day in the peaceful area. And then when I went out to other places like Hawija, Tikrit, you know, it was even more intense. And then by April 2004, pretty early, by April 2004, the Iraqi resistance had figured out how to like destroy American tanks, you know, these M1 Abrams tanks, which are like indestructible and if you were a soldier inside a tank, you're like, you know, I am good. Nobody can touch me. By April 2004, Iraqi fighters had figured out how to, you know, catch a tank on fire with rockets. And so if you were a tanker at that time or an armored truck driver or anything, all of a sudden you became faced with the reality that very likely you were going to burn alive trapped inside a vehicle. And so things became intense from that on. And then by the time the surge happens, which is the time of this demonstration, there was just 
so much senseless death. And for me, you know, I was lucky enough to not be stop lost like most of my friends were, which is a measure that the army did when they were in crisis. If your contract was over, you were kept in the military and forced to go back to Iraq over and over again, which was a definitely a cause for rebellion within the military. But, you know, I get out of the military in 2005, seeing the war just completely take off and get worse than it was when I was there, being very worried about people I cared about who were still in. And, you know, I had formed a deep connection to the Iraqi people. I mean, I worked with Iraqi people, uh, translators, and, you know, I worked in a government building. And, you know, there were many, many Iraqis that I saw on a daily basis that I, like, you know, I celebrated Christmas with. I met their kids. Like, I, you know, I had a deep love and respect for the Iraqi people that I knew personally. And these weren't just like contractors. These were, you know, civilians who worked in this government building. And then, of course, it extended to the whole population. I felt that same way about all Iraqis. And and every single day, I would look at the casualty reports. I had become, you know, probably too obsessed with the news about it and monitoring what was happening. And I was at that time when I first got out of the army, I was completely unaware that there even was an anti-war movement. I mean, that's how the mainstream media really downplayed it. I remember before invading Iraq, the only point of reference of anti-war struggle I had was like Michael Moore's speech at the Oscars, which was like the last thing I saw on television before invading Iraq. But, you know, we we didn't really even know that there were these mass protests happening. And when I got out of the army, I didn't really know that there were really protests happening anyway. But I knew I was against the war. I knew that I had a huge amount of anger towards the U.S. government, and I just felt completely helpless in knowing this was continuing to go on and and was likely to go on for a very long time. And so I was looking for a way to speak out against the war. And honestly, someone just on my college campus, one of my first days on campus was passing out an anti-war leaflet. I talked to him. Him and I became close friends and are still friends to this day. He was organizing some small protests locally in South Florida where I was going to college, but was also like, there's this protest happening in D.C. and we're organizing cars to go to it. There's a demonstration at the Pentagon, March 17th, the anniversary of the Iraq war in 2006. There's this protest coming up. We had been part of these kind of small demonstrations in South Florida. You know, I felt like I was doing something, but then it was going to D.C. for that march on the Pentagon, which was huge. And you know, that was the first time, you know, I showed up. I remembered the the film Born on the Fourth of July meant a lot to me about Vietnam veteran Ron Kovic. And I remember there's a scene at the end of that movie where he goes to an anti-war demonstration and he's wearing his jacket from the army, his dress uniform jacket. And so I wore that to the demonstration in March just because I had seen it in the movie. And the first thing I saw when I got there was a group of veterans all wearing their their army jackets. And I had no idea I was even going to see another veteran there and meet one. And that's when I realized that there was a movement among soldiers and veterans. And at that demonstration, I marched with a group of several dozen Iraq veterans. And and then at the subsequent demonstration where we were both arrested at, Brian, several months later, you know, that lead contingent was over 100 veterans, many of whom were active duty and most of whom were Iraq war veterans. And so I was looking for a way to fight back and then realizing that I was part of a community that had a similar consciousness and experience, that's kind of what started that path. Well, I want to talk about organizing among GIs and the significance of it. It was a major factor in the war in Vietnam. I mean, it was a major factor in why the U.S. could not actually escalate the war in Vietnam at a certain point because there was so much resistance 
like a division that refused to that did a sit down and refused to go into Laos in I think it was 1970 or 71. There was acts of sabotage. There was what was called fragging, which is when gung ho officers sent their troops out into battle in Vietnam, and the soldiers, the American GIs, were basically just bait because they were designed to go into the jungle, draw fire radio in their coordinates, and then have American firepower come in and try to destroy National Liberation Front guerrillas. So the soldiers were completely expendable, and they didn't want to keep going out on these you know, platoons into draw fire. So they started using fragmentation grenades and other armaments to kill their officers and then go back to base and say, well, that battle's over. So you know, a lot of officers got hurt or got killed that way. So GI resistance was everywhere. And as a matter of fact, at that time during the Vietnam, not to digress too much, but when I got my draft notice the day I turned 19, I was anxious to go into the military because so many anti-war people, revolutionary people, socialist people, we wanted to go into the military to organize more resistance inside the military because it was such a, it was happening. And as it turned out, I had just started a new chapter in Rochester of a group called Youth Against War and Fascism. And the national leader said, don't just go into the military right now, just help organize that organization in Rochester. So as it turned out, I was facing criminal trials anyway, two sets of them, so I couldn't be drafted. If you're facing trial, you can't be drafted, by the way. In case the draft ever comes back, everybody, (laughs) just that's a little hint. But, you know, radicals wanted to go into the military because we wouldn't go to Vietnam, you know, if you were already radical, but you'd go in and you'd organize among soldiers and sailors and Marines to spread anti-war agitation. As a matter of fact, when I went to my draft physical in Buffalo, New York, I brought a newspaper of the American Servicemen's Union, and I handed it out to all the people who were about to be conscripted like myself. And, you know, half the people were very unhappy and angry with it, but half of them were like, yeah, I want to join this union. I mean, that's where things were in 1970. That's how deep the anti-war sentiment was among soldiers and GIs and, of course, veterans too. So anyway, I want to talk to you about this. I want to talk to you about the centrality of it. But before I do that, I wanted to just throw in this one last thing about the surge. It seemed to me that the surge also, Mike, was a failure because while the war started to wind down after the surge happened. It was really not because these 100,000 American soldiers were fighting. The U.S. government started paying Iraqi resistance fighters not to shoot at American soldiers. They actually gave them like $300 a month stipend. I mean, tens of thousands of Iraqis who were resistance forces were paid not to shoot. And that had the effect of allowing the United States to start to draw back from what was by that time an obvious defeat. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we didn't see that level of rebellion within the military during the Iraq and now with the Afghanistan war still going on. But there was a significant amount. You know, Brian, you did a a recent episode that talked about the Gulf War. Right when the Gulf War started, 2,500 active duty service members filed for conscientious objector status, which is a a lot to all within a matter of weeks. You know, 2,500 soldiers said that they would not fight in the war. And about 100 or more active duty soldiers actually went to jail, refusing to go to the Gulf War. And then you, you had rebellions in entire units, like you're describing, happened in Vietnam. You had a unit in Texas 
where around 100 soldiers in a National Guard unit all together decided they weren't going to deploy. One soldier got sentenced to six years in prison for organizing a mutiny. That's what he was charged with. And he went to prison for that. And that was mostly black soldiers. I think that was about 60 black soldiers that organized together to refuse deployment. And so even under conditions where, you know, the Gulf War there wasn't a huge amount of opposition to the war in American consciousness. There was no prospect of mass American casualties where people had to worry about being used as cannon fodder on the battlefield. I mean, and there weren't people who joined with some kind of anti-war ideas or anything. This was just kind of an organic, you know, reaction. And it just kind of shows people joining the military at that time and prior to 9-11 and even people after 9-11, you know, were not joining with this idea of living the life of the glorious soldier, like in the movies and charging into battle. And so we saw the same thing, of course, with the Iraq war. Thousands of soldiers turned against the war. And these are both soldiers like me who joined before 9-11 and ended up in a position they never expected to be in. Or, of course, the Iraq war was defined by a lot of non-combat arms people like myself who were then put on patrols and were involved in frontline fighting because the war was being lost by the United States and they didn't have enough combat arms people. And so they just put, you know, cooks and mechanics and intelligence people on security convoys and things of that nature. And of course, a large number of those people turned against the war for the same reason those soldiers in Vietnam who knew they were being used as cannon fodder did. Even people who joined as the true believers, people who joined after 9-11 to go fight, to go get retribution and all of that stuff, and were involved in doing things like that, you know, they turned against the war also. And so there's a real like tapestry of active duty soldiers who in different ways fought against the war, which includes on the ground rebellions. Like I think in 2004, there was a National Guard unit that all of a sudden refused going on convoys because they were, you know, getting blown up constantly and the command didn't care about them. And so they started, and these were supply convoys. These were essential to the war effort for other troops to get resupplied. And they said, we're not going. You know, there's this famous incident early on in the war where Donald Rumsfeld is speaking to a room full of soldiers. I believe it's in Iraq and they all start booing him and a soldier stands up and confronts him about the fact that they've all been just left out to dry, you know, sent to Iraq with, you know, and this was a struggle over equipment, you know, not having adequate equipment or body armor or vehicle armor. And so a lot of soldiers were getting killed just because this military, which is the richest, most overfunded military in the world, you know, didn't give basic protection to its rank and file soldiers. And so there is early on a real political struggle over this fact and rebellions over the fact that we were there with no protection and the politicians and the commanders cared nothing about our lives. And so that was kind of the first wave of rebellion in, in the active duty ranks. But, you know, by the time that the anti-war movement had reached you know, a height like during the surge when you and I met and were both arrested, you know, there were not only thousands of soldiers who had become anti-war, but hundreds of them had joined the anti-war struggle in the same way that I did, that were joining demonstrations, that were organizing different ways, that were helping people refuse deployment. There were several soldiers who, even in that first year, people like Camilo Mejia, people like Kevin Benderman, I mean, both sergeants who were in Iraq. And then when they got redeployed, in fact, Camilo Mejia was on mid-tour leave and he refused to go back to his unit in Iraq and went to jail for nine months. Kevin Benderman went to jail for 16 months for refusing to go back to Iraq. And so, you know, you had resistance in different forms. And there's a lot to be said about that. But I think the important thing is that GI resistance was a phenomenon. And it was a phenomenon in the Iraq war. It was a phenomenon in the Afghanistan war. It's a phenomenon in the Gulf war. It's a phenomenon in the Vietnam War, as you mentioned. And in fact, it's been a phenomenon 
in every imperialist war in the United States and in other countries, there is always some sector of the military. And it's bigger or smaller depending on, of course, different conditions with the war, with public consciousness at home. You know, but depending on the factors, no matter what they are, there is always some sector of the military that not only becomes anti-war, but identifies with the people that are being fought against and wants to become active fighters against it. And some of them become organizers and leaders and start organizing others. But a greater number are people who can be organized if they are reached. And that's something that's just been repeated throughout history over and over again. And it's true today still. And indeed, that's why we in the Answer Coalition paid a lot of attention. On September 15th, the idea that veterans and GIs would lead that protest against the surge, that was our conception, in fact, because even though we weren't in the military, we were civilians, we recognized as anti-war people, as anti-imperialists, as socialists, that in order to really fight the war machine, you have to organize the workers who are part of the war machine. I mean, the military itself is a microcosm of class society. The brass is just the bourgeoisie in uniform. The rank and file soldiers, some may be liberal, some may be conservative, some may have good political consciousness, others may have bad consciousness, but they are, in fact, the proletarian wing of a bourgeois army. And in order to make radical change, in order to win the peace, you have to organize the workers in the war, which, of course, would be the soldiers, sellers, and marines, to turn against the war, to turn against the brass. And that's exactly what the American Servicemen's Union did and other GI organizations in the 1960s. It was highly effective by the late 1960s, early 1970s. The newspaper, the same newspaper I handed out for my draft physical when I was 19 years old, that newspaper called The Bond of the American Servicemen's Union, that was being delivered to frontline troops in Vietnam by anti-war GIs who were flying as pilots in the postal service for the military. That's how deep the roots were for anti-war organizing. And, you know, Mike, I just want to end on this. This is an important question. I mean, I know there are some people in the movement, the moralists who say soldiers are the same thing as cops and any soldier has to just be condemned and denounced and it's wrong to try to organize them. This is a policy that the Answer Coalition 100% rejects. And as socialists, we're in the same tradition of earlier revolutionaries. I mean, the socialist movement split into like a communist camp and a socialist camp at the time of World War I over whether to support or oppose the war. The communists or those who became the communist parties were the steadfast fighters against entrance into World War I. And after the Russian Revolution, they reorganized the socialist movement globally. But when they did that, when they formed what was called the Communist International or the Third International Point number four of the conditions of membership for the different parties and organizations was just this. I'm quoting, persistent and systematic propaganda and agitation must be conducted in the armed forces and communist cells formed in every military unit. In the main, communists will have to do this work illegally, meaning they're in a chain of command and you'll be punished or executed. Failure to engage in it would be tantamount to a betrayal of their revolutionary duty and incompatible with the membership in the Third International. Now, we only have two minutes left, Mike. This is the tradition of the revolutionary forces within the left, not to condemn the rank and file, I mean, condemn them when they carry out war crimes, but to try to organize them and win them over against the brass, against the bourgeoisie in uniform, 
and have them be part and parcel of the radical socialist, anti-imperialist, and anti-war movement. You get the last word. Yeah, well, you know, you're right that there's this idea that this debate that soldiers and veterans should not be allowed in the anti-war struggle in, in any way. I have heard in that debate the argument that, you know, that's just applying to conscripted soldiers and the soldiers rebelling in the Vietnam War, that was okay to organize those soldiers because they were soldiers who were drafted. And in the Russian Revolution, it was soldiers who were conscripted into the military and people who joined willingly are willfully, you know, betraying their class and, you know, and therefore for the rest of their lives have no place in the working class movement. Well, you know, and the quote that you read, that's, of course, not specifying that we're talking about conscripted soldiers, but everyone who is in the military. And of course, during the Vietnam War, as you know, Brian, it was not just drafted soldiers who became the frontline fighters and leaders in the GI organizing, but people who willfully joined to go to Vietnam and who were radicalized by their experiences. I mean, everyone who becomes radicalized or politically conscious and develops class consciousness It happens through going through an experience, some kind of experience in capitalist and imperialist society that brings them to class consciousness. And for many people, that is experiencing an imperialist war. But, you know, the U.S. military itself, I would argue that it's not really voluntary service. The U.S. military is voluntary the day you sign your contract. And then it is compulsory for eight years. And so the very common thing in the military is you join without a lot of information and then you are stuck. And then if you try to leave, you go to jail. It's not like when you're a police officer and you decide, oh, I don't like what I'm doing. You know, you can quit and there's no repercussions. In fact, you know, you're on a good career path already. And so it's probably beneficial to quit. Not the case in the military. Once you sign that dotted line, they have you for eight years. Even if you sign up for a shorter contract, two years or four years, they own you for eight years, whatever they want to do with you, and you cannot leave. And you know, in fact, what doesn't get talked about a lot is how people are targeted for that recruitment. I mean, Uh, The military's own study found that one in five recruiters use things like threats, coercions, false promises, and other improprieties to get people to join. Youth recruitment, I mean, people get targeted for recruitment as young as age 11 with these like ROTC rifle clubs. I mean, officially, the military starts documenting your information around age 15. But of course, there's all these things like, you know, now with esports and so forth. I mean, you're targeted around 13, 14 officially by the U.S. military to join. In fact, the ACLU did a study and said that the targeting of youth, quote, undermines the voluntary nature of enlistment for so many people. And we know that the military targets predominantly poor working class people, disproportionately oppressed groups in the United States, especially black soldiers who are completely overrepresented as a demographic in the military. We see this today where recruitment numbers go up as the student debt crisis exacerbates. And so when you have a military that is intentionally seeking out poor people who believe they have no future and people who have already been indoctrinated with in a lifetime of saying the one good thing you can do in this society is join the military. And that's really the culture. It's honored and revered everywhere. And also the fact that you're targeted when you're young. You have all these other things that people really don't recognize, like family pressure, you know, your parents pressuring you to go in, recruiters pressuring you to go in. And then, you know, people can be taken advantage of at a young age and end up signing up for the military. And so you have this I think a significant sector of the military who's in that position. And, you know, once you're in the military, your economic conditions don't really change much. In fact, 
uh, $30 million of food stamp money and SNAP benefits goes to active duty military families. Like you join as a poor person, you go in the enlisted ranks and you're still struggling economically. But even people who do join because they want to join the military and they're really excited about it and whatever, and then come to find that it's not at all what they believed it would be, or they have some kind of change of consciousness, which so many of us had. So if you have this reality, this reality of the composition of the active duty and reserve and National Guard forces. And then on top of that, you have all of these potentials for crises, like when the Iraq war was bad, a war broke out, all of a sudden, a lot of soldiers didn't want to be there. You know, that's a crisis. When you have here in the United States, soldiers, you know, as there's growing consciousness and solidarity with immigrants, soldiers told to go do work at the border or soldiers who support the Black Lives Matter movement being called out to go repress Black Lives Matter demonstrations. So when you have this base, this composition of the military that has all this revolutionary potential as a poor and working class sector in the military, that's part of our class. And then all of these periodic guaranteed crises that face service members, you know, that creates the potential for organizing to happen. And so the question is, if, if these things are guaranteed, if history shows us this and our current experience shows us this, that rebellions and potential for organizing in the military are guaranteed at points where there's outbreaks of war or other crises facing service members, if these things are guaranteed, do you want to be on the sidelines? Do you want to be shunning them, punishing them forever? Or do you want to take advantage of those opportunities to create some kind of powerful force that can be a force for social change in this country? And I think when that has been harnessed in the examples you mentioned, the Russian Revolution, the Vietnam War, when that power has been harnessed, it has the potential to do incredibly powerful things. But those opportunities can also be missed. And if you're not prepared to seize on those opportunities, like say if we had started a war with Iran under Trump, that would have been another opportunity for mass organizing against imperialism in the military, you know, that could have had an impact on the war were it to start. And so it's not just a theoretical discussion we're having. These are all questions that face us possibly in the very near future. And what are our actions going to be when those opportunities present themselves? That was Mike Preisner. Mike is the producer of The Empire Files. Mike is also a co-host of the podcast Eyes Left, a socialist military podcast hosted by two anti-war army veterans from the Afghan and Iraq wars. Mike was a soldier serving in the U.S. military during the Iraq invasion, and he went on to become an anti-war leader who organized soldiers and veterans to resist the Pentagon war machine. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.